good evening. It's 9.08 p.m. on Thursday evening, January 21st, 2021. There's a, what is this, a book app? It's, um, audiobook from the app store. Let's listen to a few of the free samples, previews. First up is Between the World and Me with Tanahasi Coates. And by the way, if you want to hear Carl Coates That's, uh, I believe that's Ta-Nehisi's father's name. On quarantine-tapes.com or It's a podcast, Quarantine Tapes. Walter Mosley, the famous book writer... Walter Mosley interviewed Carl Coates and, and there's some some other ones some other interviews up there that I haven't heard yet but I intend to listen to on the quarantine-tapes.com online but for now, let's listen to a sample of the book by Tanahasi Coates Between the World and Me. Pulitzer Prize winner. Penguin Random House Audio presents. Between the world and me. This is the author, Tanahasi Coates. And one morning while in the woods, I stumbled suddenly upon the thing. Stumbled upon it in a grassy clearing, guarded by scaly oaks and elms. And the city details of the scene rose, thrusting themselves between the world and me. Richard Wright, Between the World and Me. One. Do not speak to me of martyrdom, of men who die to be remembered on some parish day. I don't believe in dying, though I too shall die, and violets like castanets will echo me. Sonia Sanchez Son, last Sunday the host of a popular news show asked me what it meant to lose my body. The host was broadcasting from Washington, D.C., and I was seated in a remote studio on the far west side of Manhattan. A satellite closed the miles between us, but no machinery could close the gap between her world and the world for which I had been summoned to speak. When the host asked me about my body, her face faded from the screen and was replaced by a scroll of words written by me earlier that week. The host read these words for the audience, and when she finished, she turned to the subject of my body, 
although she did not mention it specifically. But by now, I am accustomed to intelligent people asking about the condition of my body without realizing the nature of their request. Specifically, the host wished to know why I felt that white America's progress, or rather, the progress of those Americans who believe they are white, was built on looting and violence. Hearing this, I felt an old and indistinct sadness well up in me. The answer to this question is the record of the believers themselves. The answer is American history. There is nothing extreme in this statement. Americans deify democracy in a way that allows for a dim awareness that they have, from time to time, stood in defiance of their God. But democracy is a forgiving God, and America's heresies, torture, theft, enslavement, are so common among individuals and nations that none can declare themselves immune. In fact, Americans, in a real sense, have never betrayed their God. When Abraham Lincoln declared in 1863 that the Battle of Gettysburg must ensure that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth, he was not merely being aspirational. At the onset of the Civil War, the United States of America had one of the highest rates of suffrage in the world. The question is not whether Lincoln truly meant government of the people, but what our country has, throughout its history, taken the political term people to actually mean. In 1863, it did not mean your mother or your grandmother, and it did not mean you and me. Thus, America's problem is not its betrayal of government of the people, but the means by which the people acquired their names. This leads us to another equally important ideal, one that Americans implicitly accept, but to which they make no conscious claim. Americans believe in the reality of race as a defined, indubitable feature of the natural world. Racism, the need to ascribe bone-deep features to people and then humiliate, reduce, and destroy them, inevitably follows from this inalterable condition. In this way, Racism is rendered as the innocent daughter of Mother Nature, and one is left to deplore the middle passage or the trail of tears the way one deplores an earthquake, a tornado, or any other phenomenon that can be cast as beyond the handiwork of men. But race is the child of racism, not the father, and the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy and physiognomy so much as one of hierarchy. Difference in hue and hair is old. But the belief in the preeminence of hue and hair, the notion that these factors can correctly organize a society, and that they signify deeper attributes which are indelible. This is the new idea at the heart of these new people who have been brought up hopelessly, tragically, deceitfully to believe that they are white. These new people are like us, a modern invention. But unlike us, their new name has no real meaning divorced from the machinery of criminal power. The new people were something else before they were white. Catholic, Corsican, Welsh, Mennonite, Jewish. And if all our national hopes have any fulfillment, then they will have to be something else again. Perhaps they will truly become American and create a nobler basis for their myths. I cannot call it. As for now, it must be said that the process of washing the disparate tribes white, the elevation of the belief in being white, was not achieved through wine tastings and ice cream socials, but rather through the pillaging of life, liberty, labor, and land, through the flaying of backs, the chaining of limbs, the strangling of dissidents, the destruction of families, 
the rape of mothers, the sale of children, and various other acts meant first and foremost to deny you and me the right to secure and govern our own bodies. The new people are not original in this. Perhaps there has been at some point in history some great power whose elevation was exempt from the violent exploitation of other human bodies. If there has been, I have yet to discover it. But this banality of violence can never excuse America, because America makes no claim to the banal. America believes itself exceptional, the greatest and noblest nation ever to exist, a lone champion standing between the white city of democracy and the terrorists, despots, barbarians, and other enemies of civilization. One cannot at once claim to be superhuman and then plead mortal error. I propose to take our countrymen's claims of American exceptionalism seriously, which is to say, I propose subjecting our country to an exceptional moral standard. This is difficult because there exists all around us an apparatus urging us to accept American innocence at face value and not to inquire too much. And it is so easy to look away, to live with the fruits of our history, and to ignore the great evil done in all of our names. But you and I have never truly had that luxury. I think you know. I write you in your 15th year. I am writing you because this was the year you saw Eric Garner choke to death for selling cigarettes. Because you know now that Renisha McBride was shot for seeking help. That John Crawford was shot down for browsing in a department store. And you have seen men in uniform drive by and murder Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old child they were oath-bound to protect. And you have seen men in the same uniforms pummel Marlene Pinnock, someone's grandmother, on the side of the road. And you know now, if you did not before, that the police departments of your country have been endowed with the authority to destroy your body. It does not matter if the destruction is the result of an unfortunate overreaction. It does not matter if it originates in a misunderstanding. It does not matter if the destruction springs from a foolish policy. Sell cigarettes without the proper authority, and your body can be destroyed. Resent the people trying to entrap your body, and it can be destroyed. Turn into a dark stairwell, and your body can be destroyed. The destroyers will rarely be held accountable. Mostly, they will receive pensions. And destruction is merely the superlative form of a dominion whose prerogatives include friskings, detainings, beatings, and humiliations. All of this is common to black people. All of this is old for black people. No one is held responsible. There is nothing uniquely evil in these destroyers or even in this moment. The destroyers are merely men enforcing the whims of our country, correctly interpreting its heritage and legacy. It is hard to face this. But all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, White privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions, all land with great violence upon the body. That Sunday, with that host on that news show, I tried to explain this as best I could within the time allotted. But at the end of the segment, the host flashed a widely shared picture of an 11-year-old black boy tearfully hugging a white police officer. Then she asked me about hope. 
and I knew then that I had failed, and I remembered that I had expected to fail, and I wondered again at the indistinct sadness welling up in me. Why exactly was I sad? I came out of the studio and walked for a while. It was a calm December day. Families believing themselves white were out on the streets. Infants raised to be white were bundled in strollers. And I was sad for these people, much as I was sad for the host, and sad for all the people out there watching and reveling in a specious hope. That's the end of the sample for Tanahasi Coates Between the World and Me. It's a three hour and 35 minute audio book that sells online. It's in your app stores. Thank you for listening.